1: Hello, everybody. I'm Morris Arduin, co-host for the podcast, Queer Voices of the South, which is found under LGBTQ Studies on the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Andrew Kunkka about his new book, The Life and Comics of Howard Cruz, Taking Risks in the Service of Truth, which was released in December by Rutgers University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kunkka.
0: Thanks. Thanks for having me, Morris.
1: It's, it's great to have you. Uh, we are flattered that you said yes. <laughs> um, w- there's so much to talk about, but I want to give the uh, listeners a little bit about you first, a little bit of context. So I have a little blurb that I pulled from the book. It says um, Andrew Kunker is a professor of English and division chair at the University of South Carolina Sumter. He is the author of the book Autobiographical Comics and has also published articles and book chapters on Will Eisner kyle baker doug minch jack katz and dell comics the book um itself the book blurb is a great primer for us to to do an interview because it talks about exactly what i wanted to talk about when i'm reading the book i'm thinking oh i (laughs) this is these are perfect categories for a conversation um in 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 the in the short uh format that we have for a podcast episode um we we won't be able to get it all in but i do want to cover as much ground as possible so i'm going to give the listeners first a little bit about the book uh, from the the jacket it says the life and comics of Howard Cruz: taking risks in the service of truth tells the remarkable story of how a self-described preacher's kid from birmingham alabama became the so-called godfather of gay comics This study showcases a remarkable 50-year career that included working in the 1970s underground comic scene, becoming founding editor of the groundbreaking anthology series Gay Comics, and publishing the graphic novel Stuck Rubber Baby, partially based on his own experience of coming of age in the Civil Rights era. Through his exploration of Cruz's life and work, Andrew J. Kunka also chronicles the dramatic ways that gay culture changed over the course of Cruz's lifetime from Cold War era homophobia to the gay liberation movement to the AIDS crisis and to the legalization of gay marriage. Highlighting Cruz's skills as a trenchant satirist and social commentator, Kronka explores how he cast a queer look at American politics, mainstream comics, culture, and the gay community's own norms. That's exactly what we're going to talk about today, all those things. And I tell you, I have to uh, disclose, I am a person who, from that generation, I was coming of age in the 1970s. So, And I remember these comics, so I was thrilled to get this book. Um, and as, as I was reading it, I was even more thrilled that it put all this in context, and it was reminders that this wasn't just passive comics. This was these were thought through. This the 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 um, uh, Mr. Cruz was was uh, very uh, t- first of all talented, but also determined to do, um, to make some, uh, changes to move, to move the dial. He was, he was not, this was not casual. Um, the book is terrifically illustrated. Um, you use a lot of the actual, um, comics that appeared, uh, bits and pieces and full and, and the full comic, um, pages of, of his various parts of his work, uh, which is delightful. I wish we could show those things, but this is an audio podcast, so we won't, but, um, I wanted to talk to you first about, first of all, congratulations. This is a terrific book. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, there's so much work in here and it's, it comes off beautifully. It's a great read, just as an enjoyable. You don't have to have anything vested in, in the topic. It's actually fun to read. Um, the, the, the thing that, that struck me at first about you, and I mentioned your um, background a little bit, is that you are in such an interesting niche in academia. There aren't many people like you doing what you do, uh, examining comics and their creators and the impact on culture, um, you've been doing that for quite a while. How did you start doing that? How did you come to do that?
0: Um, th- thanks for that that introduction and for that question. Um, so i've been I've been a lifelong comic book reader. Um, you know i i the family lore is that I le- I learned to read when I was three, and it was comic books mainly, um, like Archie and Richie Rich and Casper the Friendly Ghost and stuff like that. And so, um, so I've always, and and I never stopped reading comics and I'm in, in my fifties now. And, um, and so it was, you know, so it was, it was always something I had in, um, you know, that that's been a kind of dominating hobby in my life. But when I went to graduate school in, um, or went to undergrad and then graduate school in the, the, um, nineties, the, there, there, there wasn't, you know, if you got an English major, there weren't a lot of opportunities to do to do comics um, or to study comics. I remember I had a um, uh, an undergraduate professor um, write a letter of recommendation for me. This is about 1991, and he wrote in a letter, um, "Andy was the first person I knew who was into mouse into Art Spiegelman's mouse," <laughs> so um, so so that that was, that was a rare thing at that time. Um, and, and so I did my, my dissertation, my PhD work in modern British literature, 20th century British literature, but, and th- this is, this is a, sto- a story that a lot of comic scholars have who, who are in English and are of my generation that the kind of the moment I got tenure based on my research and scholarship in in that area in 20th century British literature. I just I just decided I I want to spend the rest of my career studying comics, and fortunately around that you know around that time too the the field of comic studies was really growing, um, and um, and it's and it's since grown to be a pretty a pretty big uh, multidisciplinary field. So I'm I'm happy that it exists. I'm happy to be a part of it, and that. I've got, you know, 50, 50, years of research basically under my belt to, to continue doing this work.
1: Well, you make uh, a really solid point of the value of comics in this book. Um, there's huge value. And especially as a member of the LGBT community myself, um, I, there are parts that choked me up that I looked at and go, wow. That was groundbreaking. There's so a lot of you, that. You don't use that word lightly. Ground, groundbreaking. A lot of people do use that word uh, lightly. This man was really groundbreaking. Um, and um, why did you write this book? What brought you to, to
0: him? That yeah. So um, so I had written this book about a, a kind of general overview of autobiographical comics and and how that genre functions in. Um, in the medium of comics and um and one of the things that struck me while doing that especially in writing about the the um, underground comics of the 70 of the late 60s and early 70s was that there were a lot of these creators who did great work in short stories that nobody can you know that that you can't get unless you go and find these old you know these old back issues of underground comics and Um, and that I thought this was like, you know, a ripe area for not only for study, but for, for doing something in which there could be a, a book like this that could be used in classes that, um, or, or used as a springboard for, for further study. But anyway, so I thought it was really, you know, it was, it was really unfortunate that there were a lot of great creators that, that people don't tend to read because they just don't have access to their work. Now, with 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 Howard, he did you know Stuck Rubber Baby, which is um you know is a pretty canonical graphic novel. Though at the time I started working on this this book, it was out of print. Um, coincidentally, a new edition of it, a twenty fifth anniversary edition, came out from First Second Books while I was working on on um, on this project and pretty close to the end of it. So, um, so that is that is now available. But for the most part, his shorter works were hard to find, and um, a lot of these works are really, um, you know, really innovative in terms of how he, he uses the comics medium and in, in unique and innovative ways to tell stories. Um, and so, I wanted to do something that um, kind of celebrated and explored those things so that those stories, so that they could, you know, again, someone, someone could hopefully pick this up and, and uh, build, build on the work that went into it. Um, And so um, it happened to be too, that uh, the editor at, of the series at Rutgers University Press, Frederick Luis Aldama uh, was putting together this, this series called critical graphics, which was going to do exactly what, I was hoping I could do with some of these creators that I was, I was finding in the autobiographical comics book that I thought needed, um, you know, could use this, this kind of exposure. And so when he announced the series and, and actually I've worked with him before. So he asked me if I had anything I wanted to do, um, for it. I said, yeah, absolutely. You know, I want to, I want to do a book about Howard Cruz. Hmm.
1: Um, you you take us um, through these big shifts in history of LGBT through this man's work um, and contextualize it because uh, you can look at the illustrations the uh, the graphic uh, the the novel graphic uh, uh, panels uh, the, just the word choice there's all so many components in his work that are not um, they're not subtle he's very he was very very uh, uh, blunt a lot of the illustrations would not be welcome <laughs> in in mainstream anywhere um and, and i remember them um uh, again as a as a person back then who was going and you'd see this kind of thing and go wow wow this is so cool um you don't get to see that any place and it was kind of uh it was liberating it was one of those things well wow, okay this isn't so this isn't so um i don't know spooky or scary because uh, to be in that world at that time in this time too but in that back back in the 70s to be a person who is uh, uh, just figuring his own or her own way out of uh, uh, about how to how to be in this kind of world um there wasn't a lot to go on and these comics um th- this kind of writing um was just so so welcome so illuminating so, so you know it was a huge huge um not endorsement what's the word i want affirmation that we were real we're queer we're here get used to us kind of thing um and um what i loved about it is that it was you know some parts of these panels you would think of on the surface are like oh that's kind of raunchy but then at, the, at the, the point it's making is like so damn profound it's like oh absolutely that's the way to tell it so um uh, you didn't shy away from any of that because he didn't shy away from any of that the um the the I, I, on this podcast, I have so far done a lot of books that are putting the history of LGBT world into context, especially in the United States. Um, and um, this piece is was so critical. Um, th- this man's work, I mean, th- this piece of the uh, of the history is, was so critical because that was a time when there was so much movement, and, you, and that's mentioned in your blurb of the book about those, these. Uh, cold war era homophobia the gay liberation movement that started um after stonewall actually started before stonewall but stonewall helped solidify that then the aids crisis um which threw everything into just just a, just a spiral of weirdness um and then legalization of gay marriage was actually never thought would happen in my own lifetime i it, when that happened i was i was kind of in dis- disbelief I, I didn't trust it a lot of us we did not have uh emotional vocabulary for being married we did not know what that was about um so um all these things are shifting not only for us but the outside world And like whoa see us as we really are and you know demystify a lot of us so he he was great at doing that very thing demystifying it um let's see i wanted to talk to you about um and stop myself from talking <laughs> talk to you about uh, you you started out with the autobiographical um work that this is autobiographical he used a lot of his own life but of course he took characters um he made characters that you could tell as a reader were based on him but also that they were fictionalized and he you know that's you know he he mentioned somewhere and i forget where but that he says i couldn't possibly put my mundane life down i'm 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 bent over a a drawing desk uh, most of my day and so my life is actually not that exciting but he made the characters based on his life very quite exciting um, so, um, I wanted you to talk about that at autographical fiction versus fictional autobiography, uh, a- autobiography, which is one of your chapters that, that, that was fascinating to me. Tell us about that, that whole concept.
0: Okay. So, yeah. So, um, you know, and when I, when I wrote the autobiographical comics book, um, one of the, one of the things I became really interested in, in fi- in finding, finding out, you know, or looked in looking at this idea of about what, you know, what means, what does truth mean in terms of autobiography, especially in terms of doing autobiogra- autobiography in comics form. Um, because, you know, there's, you know, if we, if we read a prose autobiography, we might, you know, we can look at the back cover and see, you know, the, a, a photograph of the, the, um, person or they'll usually be photographs within the book of um you know the person throughout their lives so so while we're reading that we have a picture of what that person you know looks like through through time and um you know there's there's ways that um we read autobiography in a uh in a way in which uh as as one of the things i talk about this idea of the autobiographical contract you know that there's this kind of trust that the reader has that in the veracity of what, of what they're reading and what ha- and so one of the questions I had was what, what happens to this when you're reading an autobiographical story that's mediated through, um, an artist's hand so that, that artist is drawing, you know, an avatar representation of themselves that isn't exactly them. Um, but is their kind of image of them? What, um, you know, what choices does that creator make then in terms of, of truth telling? Um, you know, um, is there, since, since the visual representation of comics from the avatar of the, of the character through, you know, any other details in the, in the story are, um, you know, choices that, that, that creator has made and are filtered, then what does, um, you know, what, what does, what does truth mean in that? And do we privilege certain kinds of truth? Like, you know, the factual truth versus an emotional truth. And, um, but, but what Howard did was go even a step further, which is to, in in a lot of these stories is to, in some cases, like, like the one called the guide, which is about an early acid trip, um, to take us on what look feels like an autobiographical story and then twist it at some point where you get this, you know, this absurd and kind of horrifying conclusion to that story. I don't want to give it all away because it's a fun, it's a fun, a fun twist that is absolutely can't possibly be autobiographical. So so to, to kind of lure us in with this idea that we're we're kind of comfortable in this, this uh, world of, you know, of truth telling that we're, get, we're we're imagining is our relationship as readers to the to the creator and then the throw throw this curveball in. That's that's a pretty fun way to approach autobiography. But then there's the other the other things that he did um to kind of just mine his own experience, but then create fictional stories around it. And I think the best example of that, one of his most groundbreaking stories is the story Jerry Mack. Where he, um, which is about um, a, a conservative uh, evangelical preacher who's remembering back to um, a relationship he had with a young man that that um, you know became romantic and, and ended up causing him to be driven out of this of uh, this conservative small southern town. Um, And one of the things, you know, when I was doing research on this book, I went to um, Howard's papers, which are in Columbia University's library, his whole archive is there. And I found, um, I found letters that talked about the event on which that story is based. Um, Now he took, he took an experience that he, he kind of witnessed uh, that he and his family witnessed and created the the a uh, character who is a young cartoonist in it, uh, even though that wasn't specifically Howard's experience and relationship with the real, the real person who Jerry Mack is based on, uh, but then created this this amazing story. And to tell that story from the point of view of of the, the preacher and the, and the, you know, tensions that he's, he's experiencing and the unresolved conflict that he still has, you know, as now a married man with children um, is, is just a really amazing exercise, I think, in empathy for, for, that, uh, for that character. Whereas I think a more traditional approach would have been to tell the story you know, as the kind of young observer that he was of the experience and not being actually involved in it. Um, and so to take the route he did, I think really, um, is really a, make, makes for a much more amazing story.
1: Yeah. Um, all of these, um, pieces, um, that you've you, you share with us in the book. And I, I wanted to, to ask you about that too, about getting access to those. And I know in the very beginning, I think you say that you, you worked with Mr. Cruz himself to get this. Um, that was a stroke of luck, um, that he was around and he helped you. Uh, uh so, um, and I forgot where I was going with that, but let's talk about that. Um, how was it working with him? You got to work with this man, and he was kind of—he was uh, what he—he he was one of those people that uh, everyone assumed, oh, he's—he's he's long gone, but he was still around.
0: Yeah, this—that well, you know that—that that was one of the—you know that was that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to um, had to deal with because when I started when I started working on. When i decided to write about howard he would definitely he was he was still with us and um you know i, I contacted him uh asked you know asked for permission to do, to do the book to use his his papers and so on and he was really helpful he was happy to to be involved in it he was really um you know he was really eager for it and and so the original plan I had for the book was, was actually to be working with him much more closely. And in fact, I had a a big chunk of the book was going to be a kind of career spanning interview with him. And, um, and so we had exchanged a lot of emails and he shared, he shared some emails with, um, with some anecdotes in them that, that were helpful. And, um, you know, and, and that was that that went into my proposal for the book with Rutgers. Uh, and then when when Rutgers accepted um, that proposal, they, uh then I, I started contacting Howard again to kind of ramp up what we were doing. And at that point, um, he wrote to me and said that he was being treated for for cancer and that um, the um, chemotherapy treatments would be would probably kind of wipe him out quite a bit. And so, um, could we put off doing the big interview until he felt better? Uh, and I said, you know, I, I, I said, sure. Um, and you know, wished him the best of luck with his treatment. And then, then around, um, I think it was November of 2019 or so he, um, he contacted me and said that things weren't going well um and that if we wanted to do the interview we better do it soon um and then unfortunately 2 days later he passed away so um yeah and um so i didn't i didn't get to do that interview but i did get his you know i got his input on a lot of stuff and was able to ask him some questions uh his his husband ed cedarbaum was great afterwards and supported and support and read through the manuscript and gave me some pointers and added some things and his, um, his agent and good friend and publisher, Dennis kitchen was a great asset as well. Um, but you know, unfortunately, you know, it would have been a much different book if, um, I'd gotten to work more closely with, with Howard in the, in the later, later parts of it. But I'm grateful that I got to know him at all know, and got to, got to share emails with him and, and, and have these conversations with them. And he really, he really saw this project as being a big part of what, um, of his legacy that the, the, you know, if a, a book like this gets used in classrooms and gets, you know, um, used as a, either as a supplement to Stuck Rubber Baby or on its own, that, um, his work will be remembered in this way and that was i felt a huge amount of responsibility towards that
1: well you do it justice let me tell you because it, it was so enlightening for me again somebody who actually went through it and saw these things in real time um i'm like whoa it's so easy to forget that a lot of people especially younger generations have no clue about what had to happen in all points of, of the world, uh, going on for LGBTQ people, um, nothing was taken for granted. There was so much, uh, hard work done just to move the needle bit by bit. Um, that's why I told you earlier, it was such a surprise when uh, marriage equality came out. I was like, I didn't trust that. Wait a minute. That seemed to have happened too fast, <laughs> even though it was decades and decades in the making. Um, so he, he, he was, he, he to use that word again, groundbreaking, he broke so much ground and, and, and thank you, um, uh, uh, as a member of the LGBT community for making, for putting this together. And uh, I do, I do feel that, you know, it's so sad that he passed away, but you did do what you, uh, uh, everything you could, what you got, because it's amazing, uh, uh, to go through this. And there's so many wow moments, um, that, um, I had told you. Some moments choked me up. Some moments made me say bravo. Some made me, made me want to scream. You know, there's so much emotion in all these story, these, these in his storytelling, and the way you tell his story. Uh, so um, thank you for that. Um, I, we we have some time left. I want to ask you a couple things about his commentary. Uh, he he was a social commentator um, in a time where not a lot of, not a lot of people were listening. Um, but, uh, except us, you know, our own little groups. And he was very, uh, what I loved about uh, his work was that he, he was satirical. Um, he was always, always tongue in cheek. He had a lot of the fun with this. He, what this, this was not all hard work. It was a lot of fun. You can tell that there's joy in his work. He was, he was a joyful, uh, writer.
0: Yeah. That, and that, that's something I really try to get it. I really try to get across is that, um, that that joy you know his his earliest work in in comics was the a, a strip he did that that got published by dennis kitchens kitchen sinks press and a bunch of different places called called barefoot's and barefoot's got a lot of of uh criticism from other um underground cartoonists like um like art spiegelman um because it was too cute. And, um, and I think, you know, on the surface, it does, it does kind of look, it does look like, um, you know, a a cute comic strip. But when you read it, that, that cuteness is a veneer over some, you know, pretty trippy stuff about, um, you know, about sex and drugs and, and uh, all that in, uh, in that, early late sixties, early seventies era. And, um, and it definitely is, is fitting with uh, un, the underground um, sensibility, even though a lot of, a lot of the underground cartoonists didn't, didn't see it that way. Dennis Kitchen thankfully did. Um, but he did, he uh, Howard also did barefoots before he came out as a, as a cartoonist came out, you know, kind of publicly. Um, and so it, Um, and, but, but so then when he does, when he, when he does, uh, basically around the time, just before he starts editing gay comics, um, and, um, and then, and then seems to really, really cut loose after that, um, after that point with, you know, you, you described some earlier, some of the, some more kind of graphic choices that he makes and, uh, but, but his stuff is hilarious. Um, some of his stuff's very serious. I mean, Jerry Mack is a very serious story, and and um and some of the other stuff he's known for is serious. But when um when he cuts loose in his satire, it's it's hilarious. And one of my favorite pieces he did, and this is one of the things he and I discussed and kind of bonded over, is the um his parody of Little Lulu, the nightmares mm-hmm. of Little Lulu. Um as a kid, he had a subscription to Little Lulu comics and it was his favorite comic. And it and it really shows through. I mean, this is a very it's a it's a very biting satire in which, you know, um but it's a it's a satire that definitely shows someone who knows, you know, knows that knows Lulu's uh story and characteristics inside and out. And um and um yeah. And so he loved, he loved those comics growing up. Uh, and, and I'm a big fan of Little Lulu and of, of Dell comics in general. Um, and I write about those in other places. And so that, you know, that's one of the the areas where we connected. In fact, he, the, it back in the fifties Dell comics had this, this little um, like paragraph um usually at the end of the comic that was called the Dell pledge to parents that said, you know, basically that this is good, wholesome entertainment for, for children. Uh, but he, he had that, he had memorized that pledge to parents and could still recite it. Uh, you know, even, you know, 50 plus year or, you know, 60, 70, 60 years or so after he had been, you know, reading those comics. Um, so, yeah. So anyway, so, um with um i think i think little Lulu, the nightmares of little lulu is probably the best and my favorite example of his his ability to do satire but also his his ability to mimic other artists um he had just an incredible eye for for doing these uncanny versions of other other people's characters the one of the other stories that i included in the book was the um the story "Raising Nancy's," in which he does a great um, yeah. imitation of Ernie Bushmiller's Nancy, for a very dark, dark story.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, I noticed that. Um, I wanted to uh, go back to the complaints of Art Spiegelman and all. Um, one, one of the things again, as a reader uh, in real time, uh, I remember that uh, it was, it was accessible um the, the cutesiness um it did draw you in and then you you write absolutely right you uh, again the readers can't see I mean, listeners can't see this now but they need to get the book to see this these uh these uh comics uh, go way deeper than that cutesy um uh, and some of these you think wow he got away with that uh you know, you know so um yeah the the uh, I, I like satire in general And but you're right his when i was when you flipping through this book and you see that strip that the nancy's and uh, the little lulu you think oh wow does he is that is that is that legal <laughs> you know that he gets such a, so close and you you could hardly put them side by side and and uh not tell the difference um so um Anyway, the, so he had many, many talents and what I liked about him, and this is uh, true, this is a uh, Queer Voices of the South, is his southernness really comes through, um, that, that, you know, God bless your hellbound little heart, you know, kind, that kind of mentality. I love that. And it comes across in his work. <laughs> so, um, and that, that's one of the things that, um, again, because, uh, I'm a Southerner is also, maybe I have a prejudice for that accessibility. Um, I keep speaking language that was natural to me. Um, but I'm not unique in that. I think he's, he was speaking language that was natural to people all over the place. Um, so, um, he, he, he did reach, um, I think new people with the work and you make that, that real plain. and you, the book, um. Well, you know the book takes this and puts it in its rightful place in the history uh, because uh, I think what happens with a lot of things there's a lot that's easy to forget. Um, uh, it's it's just more convenient when we're talking about uh, our history, our LGBTQ history, is that um, uh, uh, there's so much to look ahead about not in an optimistic way either, um, to, to, to watch out what's happening now. Um, you can't rest on what all the work that's been done, but, um, you're going to be condemned or, or you're going to suffer if you don't, uh, acknowledge and appreciate what was done before, because that those foundations, um, are not, were not random. Um, so he was one of those foundation builders. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, you kind of started talking about it when you talked about, um, uh, and the Nancy's uh, your favorite of all of his pieces? Did you have one that stuck out in in whatever area?
0: Um. Well, I think I think um, Jerry Jerry Mac is probably my my favorite. Not just uh, not just because I think it's a great story and a in a wh- really well you know well made comic. It's a it's a comic that you can talk about not just the content, which is very moving and effective, but the formal qualities of it are really, um, you know, uh, innovative and, and interesting on their own, the choices of pan, you know, the number of panels that he jams into the story and um, the way he constructs a page and so on. But also the fact that, you know, that I came across in the research, this, you know, trove of, of correspondences about that story that really opened, then kind of opened up the, you know, the autobiographical nature of it. So, uh, so I love that story for, for all those reasons, but I also think that, um, that is one of his other major, you know, major short stories is, is Billy goes out, uh, which I've got in the commentary and satire section. Um, because again, that is also a really formally innovative comic, but um, that's a that's a comic that really also gets at what Howard's ethos was behind um, gay comics, um, because it's it, you know it's it's basically the story of this young you know young man in uh, early you know early nineteen eighties, just before the AIDS crisis hits, um, and what his Basically, social life is like, you know, going out, uh, going out to bars, having these, um, you know, these quick trysts and so on out out there. And then, uh, but then also, you know, the top half of every panel is what's going on in his mind, his internal life. And there's such a depth to that internal life that, um, you know, stands in an interesting contrast to the, you know, the life he's leading uh, in this one night as he goes out, um, that, you know, when I first read that, when I was a kid, it, it, that was incredibly moving and eye-opening to me as well.
1: Um, so many, um, parts of, of his work, um, did uh, all kinds of things all at once. He never did anything simple. Um, I mean he may have had some one-offs that we don't see in this and they're not, not important to this particular piece of his history but um, he he um, didn't did maybe it's you maybe it's new but I don't remember I've read a few different um, uh, recently but the um, that he he changed the formatting I mean he did his own topography uh, hand lettering um he he, bro- he broke uh, technical grounds not just storytelling grounds um, he was indulged that because he was getting such a uh, positive following. He was there were there, you know success breeds success. So um, he there so, so technical uh, in a technical way he was a, a groundbreaker as well. And I find that you know fascinating. He seems to have been uh, kind of a, a renaissance man. Uh, you know he had he had he had so many things he could have done with his life and thank god he did this with his life but he would have been it seems successful in so many places uh he was that kind of a person and you bring that out well you know these 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 stories are um just they seem to go there's so much beneath this surface of this um anyway um i i think we're coming to the end we try to keep around 40 45 minutes uh, sometimes we go longer but um, our, audience, uh, our audiences are getting more restless with us as time goes on. Um, uh, so I wanted to let you um, give uh, the, our listeners uh, any kind of more information they might need. Is there going to be an audiobook, for example, uh, which is kind of, I know, kind of hard in a, uh, with a very visually dependent piece like this, but maybe, maybe uh, an audiobook would include a, a main reader and then reader of the comics um, so that might come across. Is that possible?
0: Um I you know, I hadn't really I didn't really consider that because so since I work, you know, with such a visual medium, but um there there is definitely um a possibility of that, I guess. I have I've never broached it with, with Rutgers and they, they haven't brought it up but well, biographically um, I think could speaking, be really interesting. I
1: think it would have merit because biographically mm-hmm. speaking, you could tell this man's story. And, the, and in so many ways, you could have like multiple uh, character uh, readers for an audio presentation. And that's what make those particularly listenable is giving them more of a theatrical kind of thing. And this is so theatrical. Um, and and yet, you know, you're you're an academic. There's it's so rich with context. Um, so there's so much value here. I I would want you, I would hope that you can exploit it. Uh, maybe we'll see a movie (laughs) spurred by this, you know?
0: Yeah. That, that, that's interesting that you say that because I think there is some, there is some interest in, in somebody doing, um, possibly doing something else with Howard, with Howard's life, whether it's using this book or using his own, um, you know, his, his his other works like Stuck Rubber Baby or some or or something like that as, as the basis for it. Yeah, I could see that. Um
1: well, um, if you have anything to tell these readers to convince them to go out and get that book, here's your time. <laughs>
0: um Well, you know, one one of the things I really appreciate about what what, what you said about the book is something that I've I've strived to do because I'm you know, I work in an academic background and it's very easy. You know, as an academic writer, to slip into, um, you know, a really kind of dense and complex um, writing style, writing for that that audience. And and one of the things I was really striving to do with this book is to make it accessible to a wider a wider range of readers. So it's not, you know, it's not just there for uh, an academic audience it's there for anybody who might be interested in any of the things we've talked about whether it's comics or or the history of uh you know LGBTQ community in America or um you know all all, the, all these other things and um and so I appreciate when when people say things like what what you've said about the book because that's definitely what I was what I was aiming for plus It was a really emotional project to work on, and uh, I hope that the uh, the kind of the emotion is that emotion is conveyed through um, through the the language that I used.
1: Um, well, you succeed in all that. Uh, I can tell you, as a reader um, of many different types of genres, um, uh, uh, this just this this, uh, this book pulls you in. Again, you don't. I don't think you have to be an LGBT person. You can have so many different interests. One of them being just like you have is. I love comics, um, and um, I, you know, are you are you a historian, or are you just like the the LGBT angles? Um, there's so much here that makes this a, a really terrific read as a reader, and I appreciate that because um, I like to move through a book, and I get eager when I when I get a, when I get my hands on a good book. I can't wait to finish it so I can go back and start cross examining. I go back to pages, I make notes, and I, <laughs> I tear tear books apart. right? you know, uh, it's not just one one go for me, but um, that makes it fun. If I have a book that I just get through and, you know, I'm glad that's over, uh, then uh, those are disappointed. This this is one of those that goes, oh, I could see this becoming. And that's when you mentioned in your uh, prologue or uh, preface uh, that uh, he passed away. Mr. Cruz passed away. And uh, so we didn't get to have that wonderful interview because there's you can tell there's going to be so much more. There could be so much more of this story, although you feel a, a really solid book without that piece of it. Um it, it just wets the appetite to know this man more. So I think that would be terrific idea if there is such a, maybe a biopic of this man's life, um, coming out one day, one of these days and, and you helped, uh, spur that. Um, so congratulations again. Um, the, the, uh, world needs this story. Um, I want the readers to read this story. Um, I, I wish you all the best in making that happen. Um, I have just to tell the audience, uh, that the book the title again is The Life and Comics of Howard Cruz, that's C-R-U-S-E, Taking Risks in the Service of Truth by Dr. Andrew J. Kunkka from the uh, from Rutgers University Press, which is, and is freshly out in December 2021. So it's there. Um, go get it. Um, you won't be disappointed. Uh, thank you, everybody. Join us again for the next episode of Queer Voices of the Selves.
0: Goodbye. Th- thanks so much for having me
1: oh great um and it was like i said we were flattered that she said yes (laughs) uh i know people like you are so busy thank you so much thanks